I'd like to do for a few minutes <clears throat> this evening is to build on what's been said so far. <clears throat> Excuse me. And to develop it a bit, to take it a little bit in cer- certain directions, uh, mainly based on what has been coming out of the two discussion groups. So I have a better idea as to how your practice is going and some aspects of practice that perhaps are not so clear and a few hints as to the future direction that we'll be taking for the remainder of the week in the rema- during the remainder of the week. Mainly, we've been talking about and attempting to develop calm. Many of you have read about shamatha, shamatha vipassana. The shamatha part is sometimes translated as calm abiding. It's not only calm, but it's abiding. So there's a stable quality to it. It's also translated as tranquility and serenity, as well as concentration. Often when the word samadhi is used, and these are used almost interchangeably, uh, concentration is used. And that's what we've been working on primarily for more than a day. I personally don't favor the use of the word concentration as an adequate translation because uh, mainly it's some of the connotations that it has in our society, in our culture. Kind of a cold exercise, you know, to get the mind to be very concentrated. It's a bit forbidding. And it also doesn't include it doesn't sound as if it includes some of the richness, uh, some of the softness that's also in the development of steadiness. So my own preference is calmness, but clearly uh, concentration or that steadiness or unwavering quality, collectedness, this is what we're getting at. So we're trying to develop calm in an intense way. is a little bit of a subtle and tricky business. Uh, A bit like a book I saw a few years ago in browsing through a bookshop. I just saw the title. I think I, I don't think I ever got to the crack the uh, covers. The title was enough. It was written by a medical doctor and it said, the title of the book was, You Must Relax! (laughs) Exclamation point. And it had to do with stress reduction and it made me very tense. So here we are, getting up early in the morning, sitting and walking and being quiet and being encouraged to work hard so that we can become calm. So we have to be careful that we don't create a a Frankenstein. More important that we don't uh, undermine that which we're really attempting to develop.
This is what was starting to come up in some of the questions. Uh, I think had to do with the matter of balance. So that we don't repeat that title of that book. Uh, it seemed as if some of you are straining, working a little bit too hard in a certain way. It's not the hard work, but something associated with the sitting and walking. Anxiety, some kind of goal, either explicit or in parenthesis. So it's not the hard work that's the problem or effort, but somehow the anxiety that accompanies it. Or in a few cases, pride. But it's mainly anxiety. And so, right off the bat, we have to learn how to balance. If you feel that you're straining and trying too hard to be with the breath, then listen to that. It's not to stop watching the breath or experiencing the breath, but to take that as a teaching as to how to experience the breath a little bit softer. There are cues that are pretty clear in the jaw and the face and the eyes, the shoulders, which point to that. At any rate, so we're we're attempting to develop calm. And it's in the context of calm and insight. They can't be understood, at least from the point of view of Dhamma practice, they can't be understood without each other. And it's not as if one is superior to the other. They're both needed, just as you need a right arm and a left arm, and you need a right leg and a left leg. They, They work together. But during this phase of the retreat, we're emphasizing the development of calm. And little by little, Um, we bring in work on wisdom too because they also develop alongside of each other. And all of us here have begun to develop the wisdom aspect of the practice as well. (coughs) Let's uh, talk a little bit about calm first. So what we're doing is out of the immense complexity of what we could be paying attention to, We've simplified the field to just the in-breath and the out-breath, wherever you're following the breath. And that can be difficult if your life is very complicated, if your mind is very complicated. Then to reduce the field of many various kinds of experience can be a drastic change, just the way you experience that. You experience it as difficult because it's so different. Just one simple object, just an in-breath and an out-breath. So it's practice in simplicity, in learning how to refine something by working with it carefully over and over, an in-breath and an out-breath. It's also simplicity in that the mind becomes rather simple. Some of you have begun to experience that. Just a a nice, calm, at times happy, still feeling. Even if it's just for a second or two. Even if you're just fully aware of one inhalation 
that's contributing to this bhavana or development. It's all valuable. And that's the way it's built up, breath by breath, inhalation by inhalation, exhalation by exhalation. This is manual labor. It's blue-collar work all the way. So if any aristocrats out there, I'm really sorry for you. We just have to do it one breath at a time. And we get distracted many times and we're attempting to view distraction in a frame of reference, from a fr- within a frame of reference that's rather different the way we usually look at things. And as I speak, I'm attempting to keep in mind that many of you are here for the first time and many of you are actually very new to meditation. And then there are others of you who have been practicing for quite a while. And as I speak, I can feel at times the difficulty in uh, reaching both of you at the same time, but I'll do my best. So I'm going into a lot of detail, which may be more than is needed for some of you, but probably not enough for others of you. We're learning how to develop a non-judgmental way of practicing so that when the mind, which has a mind of its own, decides that it doesn't want to follow the breath, even though it's heard this very eloquent uh, set of reasons as to why you should, nonetheless, it decides it doesn't want to. And so, we're taken away from the breath time and time again. And the coming back is a coming back without blame. It's just coming back, that's all. It's going away and coming back many, many times. Now, to develop the ability to do it that way, to keep the instructions, to live by the instructions, because the instructions are very simple. You may not hear it with the same simplicity with which it's delivered, or your mind may not be satisfied with that. The heart has yearnings of its own, and it doesn't necessarily include following the breath. At least, not so much, hour after hour. So there's that that's to be learned, a a radically different attitude. And what can help is if you begin to see that a large part of the practice is the coming back to the breath. It's not that it's a, oh, I didn't practice correctly because my attention left the breath. If you have that mind, it's going to be a bumpy ride. But rather, remember in the instructions, it's been emphasized, it's when your attention leaves the breath, not if. So that if we can get to the point where we understand that the coming back is actually our work. And so we can learn to do it gently and gracefully, with ease, and again, without blame. So we're developing calm, little by little. And as you know, there are many things that get in the way. The mind thirsts for all kinds of interesting sensations. We're giving it the breath and it would like to hear wonderful sounds or see beautiful sights or think lovely thoughts or fashion very fascinating images 
and play with that. And instead, we keep saying, no, please go back to the breath. The please is important. Maybe that can help it being a non-judgmental kind of movement. And we also become restless, perhaps worried. We become, the mind sometimes is dull or sleepy. It starts to doubt. It perhaps doubts itself. It doubts the teacher, the teachings. What some of you know, many of you know, I think, as the hindrances. Now, what we're doing is, in the first step, we're attempting to aim our attention at the breath. That in itself is an achievement. And then to stick with the breath. One uh, ancient image that's used is like polishing something. That is, you hold, let's say you're polishing a goblet. You hold it with one hand, then you polish it with the other. So that the aiming would be placing our attention on the breath. And then rubbing up against the breath as we do it. Sticking to it so that our attentiveness is really with the breath. When you watch closely, you can see that the mind slips off the breath, sometimes for a split second, comes back, sometimes for a lot longer. It can slip off in, on one inhalation. It can be on it on the beginning of the inhalation, slip off it in the middle, get back before it ends. It happens. See if you can see that. Don't, don't strive to see it. Just pay attention to the breath and it will come to you. And one of the things that uh, we're developing here is uh, seclusion. An inner seclusion. That is, to come here in the first place is a kind of seclusion. That is, we're taking ourselves away from certain kinds of experiences that normally make up our life and we're temporarily dropping them, coming here. But now we're moving into another kind of seclusion. And the seclusion is the seclusion from those hindrances. As the mind gets more concentrated by that simple operation of being with each in-breath and each out-breath, just doing that time and time again, And every time you're able to do that, that means that you've effectively and successfully accomplished a certain choice. That is, you've not gone for something that the mind has enticed you with. The mind has said, come over here, pay attention to me. And we've, in effect, said no. And we've gone to the breath. And when we do that enough times, what happens is, the mind becomes very quiet. The seclusion is inward. It's in the mind. And what we're secluded from are all these many mind states that uh, demand attention, at times bombard the mind. And so we're moving in that direction of a kind of inner seclusion where the mind can rest. Because if all of the activities of the mind were so wonderful, I mean truly wonderful, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't need to meditate. We wouldn't have the least interest in what the Buddha said. But the truth is that a lot of the content of the mind is a problem. It's kind of strange when you look at it carefully. The heart 
throws out lots of thoughts which are then a burden for itself. It's coming from our own heart. We think thoughts that are a burden for ourselves. And so the shamatha practice is learning how to drop that burden. Now, temporarily, this is not undercutting it or uprooting it forever, but it's learning how to, in a sense, take a break, to let go of or to slip out from under the control that the world has over us. The world here meaning simply that which is internalized, which we call world. All of the different demands, conflicts, worries, plans that make up a normal social life, which hold our interest, which we feel we must resolve, etc. And what we're doing is, the degree to which we accomplish samadhi practice, is we're learning how to temporarily let go of the world and enter into a state of increasing peace, calm, and a certain kind of happiness. As the increments of stillness develop, you may find that they're accompanied by a certain degree of happiness as well. And that uh, the development is quite extensive. We're beginning and there's quite a ways to go. There's the, the marvels of the mind just in the practice of samadhi, the marvels that are inside the heart right now that can be revealed to us. We don't have to import them from anywhere else. Quite extraordinary. And we're, we're moving in that direction and it can be accomplished by the simple but easy to underestimate activity of just being with this one in-breath and out-breath, noticing when we're taken away and coming back. It may not sound convincing. As I mentioned, please don't underestimate the profound possibilities that can come out of such a simple endeavor. Remember, simple doesn't mean easy. So, as I understand it, that's what we've been attempting to do for a while now. Now, as the mind becomes more calm, some of the problems, like the craving for beautiful sights or sounds or whatever, becomes less problematic because there's a happiness that's inner that becomes accessible. So, we don't have to be as desperate for the sensations that are outside of ourselves as we begin to taste that there's actually a joy that's inside ourselves. That doesn't mean that we're not going to go back out into the world and, uh, or right here, enjoy nature or a good meal or anything of that sort. But it's loosening the strong attachment that we have, compulsion. And it's showing us that it's possible Uh, to develop a certain degree of happiness and fulfillment that's independent of how the world treats us, whether the world thinks we're beautiful or handsome or intelligent or not so intelligent or young or old or healthy or whatever. The wrong job or the right job. It's already in the heart. We already have it. And a large part, perhaps the most important part of the re-education in the life of a meditator 
is to begin to learn that the most important thing that there is, is the heart. Because that's what we're doing. All of these different practices, techniques and practices, verbal teachings, are trying to show us that our priorities are off. That the most precious thing we have is our own heart. And yet, we give much more value to externals. So we constantly do all kinds of things to get these externals, which we think will make us happy. And the process of doing that is at the expense of the heart. So we have everything backwards. If we would understand that the most important thing is the quality of our life, let's put it that way, the actual quality of our life, not the official job description of what we're doing, which might have sound good, certain jobs, certain good reviews, if whatever. This is the fact, the actuality of the quality of our life. And that's what we're working with. What are we doing in meditation? We're looking at that over and over and over again. And we're seeing the many ways in which the heart is damaged, the way we hurt ourselves. And the attitude that's fostered in this particular practice is one of tremendous self-reliance. Because what we're all encouraging each other to do is to take full responsibility for our happiness, each one's happiness. To less and less use energy to blame others or to blame situations. And to more and more understand that there's something that's workable in a given moment for each one of us. And meditation is the art of learning how to do that. Other of the hindrances that visit us which incline us towards sleepiness or dullness, of course are going to be weakened as the mind becomes uh, more concentrated, more alert. And that's what we're developing on this simple in-breath and out-breath. There will be less of a problem. Dullness, sleepiness. That becomes less of a problem because in a, in a sense there, the degree to which we have the, uh, these impediments or hindrances are developed is the degree to which we don't have samadhi. They're kind of related to each other. Not really kind of. They're related to each other in an inverse way. Similarly, with all the different things that oppose us, the simple act of going more deeply, settling down, beginning to taste a certain amount of calm, is the medicine for many of the things that are bothering us. Now, it's not the ultimate medicine, but it's a great step in the healing of the heart to fill the heart up with a certain calm and peace. Even such things as, re- as, uh, as doubt, which is, can be fatal in all spiritual work, or maybe in everything in life, really. It's not limited to practice. When you doubt, when we doubt ourselves, we sap the energy. We're not decisive, so we can't really accomplish anything. Now, one of the, if you look carefully at your doubting mind, what I saw about my own doubting mind a while back was that one of the things that characterized it was this indecisiveness. It was sort of a commitment to keep things indecisive. If it could only keep doubting, then there would never be any resolution or 
going full speed ahead, finishing something, taking some, one thing and do, really doing it well, really doing it thoroughly. By the way, the samadhi practice can help you with that. We're taking one simple thing, just learning how to be with an in-breath and an out-breath. And many people don't have the experience of taking something, one thing, and really taking it quite a ways. Um, there's someone at our center in Cambridge who I would <coughs> refer to as a walking workshop. In other words, this person has done every workshop that Interface has offered and then some. <laughs> if he had more money, he'd probably be in California, New York. And anyway, for years he's been, uh, every time I see him, he also does Vipassana. That's part of the whole smorgasbord. Uh, it's a different workshop working on some facet of total perfection. And we joke around and uh, I've been saying I'm waiting for him to become a human being rather than a workshop. <laughs> At any rate, uh, probably as just another piece in this collection, he decided to try the samadhi practice exclusively for a, num- for a couple of months. And it was quite interesting. At first, it was almost impossible for him to, to just have just the breath. You see, you can't escape your own psychology. No matter what we do, we're putting our signature on it. And we're coming up against the tendencies that we have that are very strong. And so in this case, it was highly charged. To have only one thing, there has to be at least two things. You know, near the, the, the night table, there have to be at least three books that you're reading at the same time. And you have to be in at least two relationships, a triangle. And there's always got to be, should we eat Indian or Japanese tonight? So there is some of the, the, uh, the skepticism or the, the, the doubting of the, of the mind uh, perpetuates that. It keeps us from being decisive. And when we start to learn how to stay with one thing, with some continuity, we start to experience what decisiveness feels like. Remember, words like calm, tranquility, serenity, concentration, don't fully do justice what the experience of samadhi, I have to use another word to talk, they're all words. It's, uh, there's a feeling of a kind of solidity or strength that's useful. Being whole, because it's a unification. The mind unifies itself around one object rather than dispersing its energies. A bit like a laser beam. Okay, so this is what we've been developing and the instructions have been to come back to the breath. And now what I'd like to do is, well, what about wisdom? And... I just want to say a few words on that tonight to point in the direction uh, that we're going. We'll we'll no doubt get into that much more as the week unfolds. We're already doing it and I'd like to suggest um, how the two develop side by side. Although for the next few days uh, and for some of us perhaps even the whole retreat would be quite a valuable way to spend the retreat to work on samadhi for the whole time. But 
next week it will be much smaller and we'll be able to uh, get to know each other in a somewhat different way. The instructions are that the breath is an exclusive object of attention. Now, uh, some of you, even those of you who have been practicing for a while, have never really done that. You've worked with the breath as a primary object of attention. And you've been developing your concentration that way. A moving field of objects, which is also another way to do it and quite useful. But here, what's been suggested is that it be exclusive. So that means you just stay with the breath, you keep coming back to it. But then again, as some of you found out in the discussions, uh, when something becomes really problematic, let's say the body hurts tremendously, and it keeps taking your attention away from the breath over and over and over again, that for many of us, at least sometimes, it's necessary to drop the breath and to investigate. So that's one way in which wisdom can develop right now, because you will be derailed in a substantial way, and at that point you can investigate. Now, I'll give the beginnings of an example of it. It came up in one of the discussions, and I think should might be good to repeat it for those people who weren't there. Uh, the body will be one of the main areas which, through which wisdom can be developed. Even if we say we're doing samadhi practice, when the body becomes a real problem, we'll investigate it. So that let's say your body is hurting a great deal and you're working with the model of the breath as an exclusive object. But you find that you're in a great deal of pain or discomfort. And finally, by your standards, you determine that it's counterproductive for you to attempt to be with the breath time and time again because it's not happening, because uh, there's so much of a concern for the body, only natural. At that point, what can be very useful is simply to switch attention to the body and begin to investigate. Investigate here means to look at carefully, to be able to sort out and distinguish, to separate, and to see what's what. To know that this is a body. Let's say a part of the leg, the thigh, a knee. This is body. And then to notice that this body sometimes has pleasant feelings, but not always, and right now it doesn't. What it feels like is very, very painful. So we have a a distinction already. And then we have another distinction because the mind keeps producing thoughts about what's happening. It's not the physical, the raw physicality of the pain. The mind is making up a story about what the pain is, what the consequences of the pain might be, what it might lead to, how it's reminiscent to something that you had before. And so just to be able to sort that out, to distinguish, oh, I see, this is me. Sort of there's the body knee, but then there's the mind knee. In the mind, a story is being made up about what's happening. Now, if you can't sort that out, if you can't tell the difference, they're blended together and you get suffering, sorrow, totally beyond what it needs to be. 
a large part of what we're learning is although the body must age, must get sick, must die, and as we know, we don't have a whole lot of control over the body, even those of us who are gifted, blessed with being healthy and take good care of ourselves, it seems to have a life of its own. And we clearly don't own it. We examine the body. We see that the mind makes up a story about the body. If we can tell the difference that this is a story, this is the body, something happens, something quite dramatically happens. There's a a snap, a certain attachment that's there is lost. And it becomes lessened. In fact, you might find that although the body must go through a certain degree of suffering and pain, and no one gets away from that, it is possible for the mind not to suffer. And that's a lot of what this training is about. To leave this example for the moment, if your house burns down, that would be painful for each one of us, but it doesn't mean our mind has to burn down. Now, if we can't tell the difference between our house and our mind, they both burn down. And, and after the house burns down, the mind can be burning down for 10 years. And so it's the same with the knee, only I picked something a little bit more clear. The knee, I'm not denying that the sensations might be unpleasant. But what the mind does is something that can be examined. And we can see that the mind is adding to it by the way in which it describes it. And there are also moods. Self-pity. You can include that as part of, of the mind. The way in which we relate to what's happening to us. That is, the sheer physical sensations which are unpleasant can generate a story of how unfortunate we are. Poor me. And connect that up with all kinds of tragic possibilities. Now, all of that can be seen with wisdom, with mindfulness and wisdom, sati, panya. So that wise attention, the placement of attention with real discernment on these objects can begin to see, oh, I get it. This is body. These are thoughts. Those are certain emotions I'm having about what's happening. And finally, even seeing there's something else, that's the knowing is even different from all of these things. There's something that seems to be able to know all of this. Whether we call it awareness or mindfulness, it's quite extraordinary and magical. It's there all the time. And it knows this is me, this is thought, this is a mood. And it can even know itself. It knows that, oh, this is the knowing of it all. Now, one of the things that it can do in the process of doing that is it can know certain thoughts which are particularly destructive. And see if this is so the next time you have physical pain, which may be the next sitting. You never know. Good chance of it, eh? Guaranteed, in fact. The thought I and the thought mine can be lethal. So it's not only that you have a pain in your knee, but suddenly uh, the thought I arises and it appropriates the knee. Now, there's nothing, let's say your knee hurts. If my, right now, actually, it's my ankle is beginning to hurt. There's nothing on this ankle that's, uh, that's engraved and says, 
Larry, those, those painful sensations. They're not kind of flashing with neon signs saying, Larry, Larry. They're not, or whatever your name is. They're just sensations going on there which are beginning to be a little unpleasant. But if the mind swoops down, if the I appropriates it, claims it, and makes it its own, and suddenly it becomes my ankle. I'm the one who's feeling these sensations, and that's it, big trouble. So that part of Sati Panya's big job is seeing things like that. Seeing ways in which a kind of selfing is done, where we create a self using the materials of the body or anything else. Right now, let's limit it to the body. Now, an investigation, uh, as was just suggested, which could include, for those of you who are new, uh, classical themes, basic themes in Vipassana, like seeing the impermanence, seeing that there's suffering happening, and the last, seeing that there's really, that the pain is not a self. There's sensations in the ankle which are not pleasant, but they aren't substantially me. It's not me. It's something that comes and goes. It's something that we don't own. And you can see all these things. Now, when you do, you snap a certain connection. It's severed. And the whole thing becomes lighter. Of course, the scenario falls apart. And if you really love the scenario of being the suffering person sitting there on the cushion, then don't use wisdom. You know, be stubborn. Sit there and stew in your own wonderful suffering. There is a certain joy that comes from it. You can tell your friends how hard it is to do a retreat at IMS, and, but you did it, and maybe you can get a campaign ribbon, you know, for this particular retreat. I survived the retreat of March something or other. But I think a lot better is to, is to bring wise attention and let go of that which we can let go of. Okay, so... It can be sleep, it can be the body, it can be anything that is becoming a formidable obstacle to the development of samadhi. And so, uh, as we unfold, you can do that. And so you can see you're developing wisdom alongside of it. Now, if you're really able to do what I just suggested, if you're really able to investigate that something unpleasant like pain so closely, when you come back to the samadhi practice, you're going to see that you have more samadhi. That is, the investigation uh, severs some of the attachment. And, when you, and also just the, the level of attentiveness, attentiveness that's needed with pain, because pain is a very strong object, that in itself develops samadhi. So when you come back to the breath, you may find that, oh, by working through that unpleasantness in the knee or wherever, and you may be sweating for having done it, you come back and you suddenly find that you're much more able to be with the breath. And it goes the other way around. As you hone in on the breath and, uh, and as this stable quality of mind is developed, when you do investigation, when, when investigation is called for, you'll find that you're more able to do it because the mind is more fit and able to do that kind of work. Now, just to hint that in the long run, that's the way the practice goes. We learn how to, how to drop into calm. It can be learned by practicing. How to drop into calm, allow the heart to heal, to rest, to rejuvenate itself, to refresh itself. 
and to come out and investigate again. An investigation can be quite active and tiring as we look at things and try to learn according to the, the principles of wisdom that we're learning here. And so then we need to rest. And so the practice becomes learning how to move in and out of both. Now, to make sure there's no confusion, it's not... Uh, the breath alone could be an object of wisdom. It's not, strictly speaking, just one object because you can develop concentration on a moving field of objects just so that, that we're clear on this. For example, if you're following the breath and you're just interested in staying with it, in-breath, out-breath, in-breath, out-breath, that's what you're emphasizing and that's what we're doing now, then that's samadhi practice. You're trying to stick to the breath as best you can. But even if you limited your activity to the breath, if you switched how you look at the breath and suddenly started to see that each in-breath is impermanent, the in-breath arises and passes away. In fact, you might see that it's made up of a, a number of pulsations that arise and pass away. And so you've seen impermanence, which is one of the main themes, one of the main aspects of wisdom practice. If the breath is uncomfortable, as it sometimes is, perhaps the, the nasal passage is blocked. Sometimes there, it's, uh, there are even f- uh, fears of suffocation as we follow the breath. We're already seeing the truth of, of uh, dukkha. I mean, that's a pretty obvious case of it. And as, also as you follow the breath, and this may be difficult for those of you who are new to the practice to uh, grasp, but let it plant the seed and see if at some point in the future it makes sense to you. You can see that you're not the owner of the breath, that there's no breather, really. That breathing is happening, we're being breathed, but there's no one who owns the breath, who is doing the breathing. And I don't mean this as a poetic metaphor, I mean that as an actuality, you're sitting there and you can see that what's happening is breathing is happening, that's it. And then the thought will jump in immediately, especially after it just heard what I said. And it will say, yes, I, I'm having very nice, smooth inhalation and my inhalation is very smooth today. <laughs> but that's just the thought. Again, appropriating the quality of the breath and making it its own, just as it also appropriated the knee pain. And so wisdom can be developed on just the breath. It can be developed on any aspect of the mind or body. Okay, other ways in which um, wisdom can be developed, and some of you are doing it already, and I just want you to know you're doing it. And know that there are countless opportunities to develop panya, or wisdom, as we move along. Some of you have reported having had a string of good sittings where the breath has been very calm, and then suddenly you have a sitting and it's not so calm, and you get very angry or depressed or disappointed or grabby. And you see it. You see that you've just you've had a nice string of sittings, wonderful. And then because you want it to last forever, you get attached to it, and then you come into a sitting, and it isn't the way you want it to be, and then you suffer terribly and even turn everything upside down 
I'm not, I, I'll never be able to do this practice. You've just done it. And you see it. And that's wisdom, too. There's seeing the, the, the ways in which we misuse the technique, the ways in which we misuse the practice. And seeing that, we're also wising up. Because if you can see that grasping on to a particular pattern of breath, if we hold on to it and want it to be a certain way, and we can see in that simple phenomenon how it causes suffering, perhaps we can learn that it's, this law is going on all day long. Never taking a break. It's constantly going on. Everything keeps changing all the time. The law of impermanence doesn't take a holiday. And since we don't live in accordance with it, we get fixed in a field that is never fixed. It's a setup to feel suffering. So you learn, you learn that. And finally, just a hint so that we do a little bit more of this in our work here. What I would encourage you more and more to do, and as we get into the week, we'll not only do it, but have an opportunity to talk about it and uh, share what we're learning about it. There are countless opportunities that is in the formal sittings, you're doing what is, uh, what is called samadhi bhavana. That is, you're trying to develop this collectedness of mind. And I would appreciate if you keep trying to do that for a few more days yet. But once you leave that, and let's say you go to the everything else you do, you can continue to do things which help develop samadhi. For example, if you while you're chopping the vegetables, if that's your job, if you can really chop the vegetables, then that you are developing that same quality of mind. So while you're chopping the vegetables, notice that the mind leaves the vegetables and goes somewhere else. And just gently come back. So you're doing it there. While you're getting dressed, notice that you're attend- you're, you, you've gotten dressed so many times that you can do it on automatic pilot. Somehow the body dresses itself and the mind is somewhere else. Figuring this out and planning that. If you can just come back to just getting dressed and know that you're getting dressed as you do it. It's the same with all the activities that make up our day. So that has a continuity of samadhi uh, development in it. And the opportunities for learning wisdom are endless, simply because the opportunities uh, for making a fool out of ourselves are endless. I mean, we, you know, we all do it. A simple thing someone mentioned to me today, and this happens, it's kind of standard part of IMS, or probably just human, definitely just human. IMS is human. Um, someone reported the retreat is only a day and a half, not even, and already the, the, this person got attached to a certain seat in the dining room. And for tea, they walked in and found out that somebody else was sitting in their seat. And they were suffering. And they saw it. There was, there was the beginnings of suffering. It never really took off. They saw, what are they doing in my seat? I love that seat where you can look out and see the trees and you don't have to see other people's faces and just sip the tea meditatively. And it's only that seat can do it. And this person who I don't even know without asking my permission, they're sitting there like the three bears, you know. Who's in my bed? But the person picked up on it. They saw how the mind was literally manufacturing suffering and dropped it. It just fell away. Small, a small instance of suffering. It wasn't big suffering. 
and a small liberation. But those add up. Much of our life is made up of those very small, faulty movements where we're unaware and where we get, we get caught. And what we can learn is how to see that. And so we'll have plenty of opportunity to develop both, in a, I hope, in a balanced way. Okay. Um, any questions? We have time for a few. Yes. Well, what, how valuable is it for you? Well, this is my first experience. Yeah, so I want to know, how, is it valuable for you to be sitting in a group? I don't know. Find out. See if it's helpful. You mean because you have nothing to compare it with? Have you sat alone? I sat alone, yeah. Okay, compare it with that then. Is there any way in which this helps you? Okay, so then it isn't helping you. Okay, do you want to go home? Okay, why don't you want to go home? But do you need all these people to be around while you do that? Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I would say no. Uh, I, I have to speak in general now. I've, I've read about the value of the community uh, practice. Sangha? Yes. Okay. Uh, you know, you don't need a special word. Isn't life lived out both alone and together? You know, there are many people who practice uh, over the years. There are some people who can never practice in a group. They're put off by the, you know, the, what is it, Velcron or whatever those sounds are, and the watches go off and people keep shifting. Them. And when you're home, you don't have to deal with everyone else's idiosyncrasies. And then there are other people who can only sit in groups. You know, you suggest, why don't you start a daily practice? Sit home. I find it very difficult to sit alone. And so can only sit when there, there's a group. Both seem to me uh, lacking in freedom. And also don't seem to uh, comply with the way life is. I mean, life is both together and alone. Now, there are uh, certain benefits in sitting together for certain people. That's why I really wouldn't want to generalize. And that's why I wasn't trying to be a wise guy. I wanted to, I wanted to know if it is for you. Uh, supportiveness. Sometimes it's difficult. And you look around and here are all these people and they haven't left yet. So since they haven't cleared out, uh, then you'll stay too. And so, you know, you get some energy from that. Um, but it's not just remedial. You know, in Mahayana Buddhism, there's much more of an emphasis on the actual positive beauty of practicing together, of human beings doing something together, something which is considered noble together. So it's not just... If I weren't so weak, I, would, uh, I have to sit in these groups because I'm so weak. I need people. That may be one way to look at it, but there's a, uh, even beyond that, when people don't need people, need people in that kind of desperate way, it can be a very beautiful thing to practice together. And there are certain things that, in my own experience, uh, are definitely uh, that kind of learning is enhanced by going alone, going at it alone. 
Um, in Thailand, where both of our friends are from, the emphasis is much less on group sitting. In the, in the wats there, uh, the monasteries there, um, there's not much emphasis on group sitting at all. In fact, people are encouraged to, to practice on their own and come back together for all kinds of other things. Uh, it varies from culture to culture. The, the Japanese and Chinese and Koreans seem to do it more in groups, and we've gotten that teaching here, and we seem to uh, like it. I would say in an individual case, it's very important to do both. Um, there comes a point where practicing on your own, without the support of teachers, a nice institution like this, uh, all of that stuff, it, it's very, very helpful. But that's when the practice gets strong, you may want to provoke, by, by sitting alone, provoke certain subtle levels of fear and loneliness. And then it's very, very important to cut off all supports and do re- retreats alone. At least I have found it so. And it's always been valued that way. The Buddha did his, some of his most important work alone. The truth is you're alone here too. Although in a certain sense, meditation groups are strange groups. We're alone and together. After all, we're maintaining silence. We're not exactly chatting with each other. And you're encouraged to learn about yourself for nine days or two days. And yet here are all these other people doing it with you. And so you're alone, but then again, there's an inescapable company and we're being influenced by each other. I hope that the influence is mainly inspiring and gives us strength. I mean, it gives you strength. Any questions about the uh, samadhi practice that we've been doing? Yes? For those of us who are leaving tomorrow Mm -hmm. I wonder. Yeah, I wonder if we could talk about that. There'll be a closing talk tomorrow for people leaving. I'd be happy to go into that. I'll try to to remember. If I don't, please bring it up. Any questions about the actual functioning of the practice right here? Yes. Well, uh, it sounds a little complicated. Sometimes I, I feel myself coming back to the breath, but I'm not sure if it's a, a breath that I'm already in the middle of. Okay. Or if I'm See, just trying to breathe so that I have something to come back to. Yeah. What's important is air is going in through these nostrils and coming out. Feel that. Now, if you are trying a lot, that's going to uh, upset the practice and you're gonna, it, you'll learn about it because you're controlling the breath and you start to feel that. And if that should come up, then examine that. Bring awareness to that, something extra that you're adding to the breath. But the key thing is, you don't, I don't think you have to get as complicated as, what your, as your question sounds, at least to me, is that the, the main thing is, can you experience that contact, the contact between the air and your, uh, your nostrils? And if you're getting it there, through some kind of imposition, you're going to begin to see that because that won't work, not in the long run. Yes? So does the mind become an ally at some point in 
That's the whole... Uh, let me leave. We're going to... One of the themes of... Maybe the theme of the, the week is... Uh, how to care for the heart. Now, when I use the term heart, uh, I'm using it... Um, the Pali word is chitta. The word mind, because of all... Is, is a little limited. It's often... It means it's right here, pointing to my head, for those of you in the back. And it's rather narrow. It's just sort of thinking and imagining and remembering and kind of that, a limited view of it. Heart includes that, or chitta includes that, and it's vast. It's immense. So that uh, at first, well, at first, w- the, the mind for most of us is uh, not an ally. No. It's not reliable. And as I said, it's throwing up all kinds of things that hurt us. These are what are called the kilesas, as the tendencies of greed, hatred, and delusion, and all of their offspring, which, in a sense, uh, are entangling the heart. The heart has a purity, all its own. It's not that we have to have to import something. So you could look at this practice as a, a massive detoxification. That is, we have this pure heart that's got all these entanglements. And what we're doing is we're learning how to see through these entanglements. And from that point of view, it's a struggle. On the one hand, you have the Dharma. And on the other hand, you have the Kalesas. And they're struggling for your heart, for each one of us. We're in the middle of that. A turn towards the Dharma is a decisive turn towards saying, I am tired of suffering unnecessarily. And I want to find out why I'm doing it. And I want to change. Now, uh, Buddha Dharma is one solution to it. It's, it's one characterization of the dilemma of being a human being and also it's a kind of a, a map of a prison that we're all in and it's also a map of how to escape from the prison. Now, the map isn't perfect because it's just a map so you have to really start digging to get out, you know, make that tunnel. I only see it in movies. I don't know if anyone ever really escaped that way. But... Um, it, of course, it's the greatest friend that we have. But at this point, you know, you have to answer for yourself. The unexamined heart is a big problem, isn't it? I mean, that's, uh, that's what's ruling the world. If you, the problem in the world right now is not nuclear weapons. It's the kalesas. The kalesas in the collection of individuals known as planet Earth. I mean, the gun doesn't shoot you. You know, something some hand pulls the trigger, but there's a, a mind behind the hand that pulls the trigger that's deranged in some way. That's either being controlled by greed or hatred or delusion or unawareness, which is in all of these things. And we all have that. Perhaps none of us in this room are killers. And we wouldn't want to use nuclear weapons and we eat vegetables and all kinds of nice things. But nonetheless, the Kalesas are here too. Um... Ajahn Kantadamo today, when we were walking, uh, he saw, thought it was very curious. He saw, you know how the rocks are piled up to make these fences? And so he, he you know, just trying to understand, that's an old New England uh, tradition, isn't it? I mean, they make good friends, right? Fences make... And, but so what, we, what we talked about, what he saw, he saw it in a more innocent way. I've just been seeing rocks. All of a sudden he saw... How much time and effort to pile up all those rocks? You know, make, you know, this is my land, you know, and you're you're on my land. That's out there. That's yours. This is mine. 
you know, what he saw it as was the kalesis, you know, expressed through rocks. I and mine, and all that comes out of that. So, at this point, that's what it's about. We're trying to uh, be our own best friend. We all think everyone wants happiness, but so we, we want to, we all have our, our ways of, of trying to attain happiness. We're trying to put together those causes which produce happy endings. But without wisdom, the causes don't produce happy endings. And, all, and it also takes wisdom to even see that, to even see that what you're doing is not working. People will go through a whole lifetime doing, using ineffective ways of trying to gain happiness. Every time I visit my parents in Florida, which is a lot of elderly, retired people, uh, the most painful part is seeing how little, how it's possible to, to... The squabbles are the kinds of squabbles that go on in high school between elderly people who have lived for 80 years, 75 years. They don't have quite as much energy, so they can't do each other in as much. <laughs> but the kalesis is still there. Ruthie said to me, and I, she told me, and Uncle said, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so, it's a matter of wising up, and it's not going to happen unless we take our life into our own hands. Okay, why don't... We, yeah? Who's we? There, there's, that would be dualistic. In other words, do we? I, in other words, do I own the chit? Is what you're asking. I think the question would become uh, wouldn't make much sense at a certain point. You are the chitta. All the other things are uh, encrustations. I don't think the question. Uh, it's okay to ask the question. It's a good question. The best. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.